Astronomy Cast, episode 560, Betelgeuse. Betelgeuse, Betelgeuse. <laughs> Welcome to Astronomy Cast, our weekly facts-based journey through the cosmos where we help you understand not only what we know, but how we know what we know. I'm Fraser Kane, publisher of Universe Today. With me, as always, is Dr. Pamela Gay, a senior scientist for the Planetary Science Institute and the director of CosmoQuest. Hey, Pamela, how are you doing? I am doing well. How are you doing, Fraser? I'm doing great. And I mentioned this in the preamble, but I just wanted to uh, to say this again, which is a, a huge congratulations to our good friend, Dr. Ian O'Neill, who just announced that he's going to be working at NASA Jet Propulsion Lab in their media department. Ian is a terrific science journalist, one of the best in the business, and uh, it's a pretty good fit that he's now working over at NASA. He was the uh, editor for the Astronomical Society of the Pacific's Mercury. Uh, he has been a columnist for Discovery and Seeker. He did some work with us at Universe Today, and, uh, and this is great. So congratulations, Ian. Um, and we're going to take the next two weeks off. I'm going to call it spring break. I'm not going yes. anywhere. I'm just going to be writing software. But you, sir, are going on a grand adventure. Yeah, I'm going to Japan with my son. And there is this is not work. This is literally just him. I said, where do you want to go? And he goes, I want to go to Japan. And then I waited for cheap tickets to come around. And they did. And so we're off to Japan. Uh, of course, we're off to Japan when there's a coronavirus. Uh, but, you know, we'll take precautions. And it doesn't look like it's that bad there currently. So, uh, and I can't wait to see this place. I've wanted to go to Japan all my life. And to be able to do this is going to be a lot of fun. So I'll definitely take pictures. You know, might visit a few spacey things like the Japanese Space Agency, but this is about this is about his trip, not you know, not my trip. Uh, all right, well, so you might be surprised to hear that we've never done an episode of Astronomy Cast featuring Betelgeuse. Well, good news, this is that episode. So let's talk about the star, why it might be dimming, and what could happen if it explodes as a supernova. Uh, I, I, I had to do a search before. <laughs> I actually, um, uh, you know, wrote up my intro, and I think we suggested this one to, to, you know, for Susie to put on the calendar. And like all of this time, we've talked about Orion. We've talked about, you know, the way stars die. And we've obviously mentioned Middlejuice many times as a candidate for a new supernova, but had never actually uh, spent a whole episode on this one specific star. Well, Obviously, good timing on our part because uh, it's so interesting right now. Um, so what is Betelgeuse? It is a red supergiant star that is visible to both the northern and southern hemisphere. We have no hemispheric bias in choosing this star. It has evolved off the main sequence, which means that it is no longer burning hydrogen in its very core. And it probably did this only about a million years ago. And now it is systematically burning through heavier and heavier shells of elements deep in its, well, many, many solar mass self as it hangs out shining bright in the northern winter and the southern summer. And it is... It is Orion's right shoulder. I mean, when you look at it, it looks like it's on the left. But if you were Orion and you were facing towards us, then it would be his right shoulder. 
And there's some fascinating history on its name. And I have to admit, I went down a little bit of a rabbit hole prepping for this episode. Its its name is Arabic. And yes. over the years has uh, probably been mistranscribed so that there are those that believe that it translates as Orion's armpit. Right. And this can be caused by just dropping a little dot under one of the characters at the wrong moment in time. Um, it probably has a much better name than Orion's armpit. This is still up for a fair amount of discussion. Well, actually, um, uh, so one of our one of our viewers, uh, Rami Ahmed, who speaks Arabic, uh, he's saying that um, it is uh, the name comes from the Arabic Ibit el Jauza, uh, which literally means the armpit of the mighty hunter. So that sounds better than Orion's armpit, which it, is it's, armpit of the mighty hunter. It's true. It's yeah true. Um, and we we are going to mispronounce it. And, it, of course, the hilarious thing is is how people give us such a hard time because they're expecting that it should be Beetlejuice. Yes. But And we tend to say Betelgeuse, and that is, uh, that's a little bit of a holdover from, I think, the way they used to describe it before the movie came out. Yeah. And the movie sort of has, has shifted it to Beetlejuice. But even that isn't correct. So... So maybe we can, after the fact, maybe get Susie to get maybe Rami or someone to do the proper Arabic pronunciation in the show. And then, you know, so that then that can serve as the as sort of the standby. But yeah. And I've heard a lot of people like even like Germans say, you know, people are, say that, well, actually, it's a German word, but it's not. No. It's an Arabic. Yes. It's, and it, it comes from. Yeah. It's an, it has an Arabic root. So. And, anyway, yeah. So we're gonna say Beetlejuice, <laughs> um, and maybe even shift to Beetlejuice every now and then. Uh, please just just bear with us. And however you choose to pronounce it, this isn't an object that was strictly noted and observed by people living around the Mediterranean Ocean. This is an object that. It's variable in its brightness, as all of us can currently go out and see. And this variability appears to have first been noted by the Aborigines of Australia. It, it is a star that crops up in the lore of society after, after society. But the science, the awesome sauce science, is why yep. we're here today. Because when you ask... Which objects in the sky are most likely to go boom? <laughs> this is one of the two. Ada Crane is the other. It is strictly Southern Hemisphere. So really, Betelgeuse is the one we want so that all of us can enjoy the experience. And, and the problem is, we don't know when this is going to occur. But scientifically, we're pretty sure it's not now. Right. But you can hope to be wrong. Yes, yeah. So it's a it's a random event, um, and, and we'll talk about this a little bit about what's going on and and how we might know. But um, so I just want to talk a bit about just what stage it is, what kind of star it is compared to say a star like our sun. So so how does this star compare to to our sun? 
I radically different. <laughs> our our sun is uh, because it is ours. It is used as the measuring stick by which we well measure everything else. Right. It weighs one the sun. Exactly. Yeah, it weighs exactly one the sun. Betelgeuse is estimated that when it was in the same evolutionary stage as our sun, when it was on the main sequence burning hydrogen in its core, it's estimated to have been just under under 20 solar masses. If we had seen it during that stage, it would have been one of those bright blue O-type stars like we love to enjoy in the Orion Nebula. Orion is a massive star-forming region. That entire swath of the sky is rich in all the things needed to make stars, and there's lots of young stars in that direction. Well, Betelgeuse isn't necessarily young. It finished burning all of that hydrogen, but because it's so massive, as it evolved off of the main sequence, as it expanded out, it didn't go through this massive flash that we see in smaller stars where it suddenly was like, boom, I'm going to burn helium in my core. Instead, because it was so massive, it was able to gradually transition into doing this. And as it did, it just basically migrated sideways across the color magnitude diagram, that Hertzsprung-Russell diagram, ending up in the top center of that diagram being cool red, and kind of unable to hold on to all of its atmosphere. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you say that it's kind of, you know, it's not young anymore, but compared to the age of our sun, it's oh, super yeah. young, right? It's a baby. Yeah. It's so, only, or it's, or, you know, it's already old. Anyway, it has a very short life. <laughs> it, it, uh, it was only on the main sequence for millions of years, unlike the billions of years that our own sun will spend there. About a million years ago, it ran out of that hydrogen. And this is where we start asking, okay, so when did it really settle in to being this nice, glorious supergiant that we see now, this red supergiant? And the red supergiant is linked to, okay, we have uh, burning going on on the inside. We've had a dredge up of materials. And we think that all of these things have only been going on for tens of thousands of years. Wow. And when you start being able to consider that humanity has been around longer than the given phase of a star that we're observing you recognize how short a period of time this yeah. is and possibly even like agriculture has been around <laughs> right yeah agriculture has been around for longer possibly than betelgeuse has been in this red giant phase so let's talk about just like what's going on now you mentioned that it is burning now, obviously it is not like you know burning wood and coal right. in the in the core but what is what is happening to the star right now and causing it to do some of the weird stuff that it does so we can't know exactly what layers it's burning at any given moment the these stars like to hide what's going on in their heart i <laughs> What we know is while it is this red supergiant, it is going to start out burning helium in its very core with a shell of hydrogen around that. 
it is then going to transition as it burns that helium into heavier elements it's going to transition to burning carbon nitrogen eventually silicon until eventually it ends up with an iron core and it's at this point that the star goes kaboom right and during this process it's giving off massive amounts of light what this means is it has a massive light pressure pushing outwards and that's what is able to support this star that is bigger in radius than Jupiter's orbit <laughs> doesn't crazy. reach all the way to Saturn but it's right. trying yeah but it could gobble it would gobble up Jupiter Oh, yeah. Yeah. But it varies. And so, I mean, it is a variable star. And part of the variation comes from literally the change of the star's size. Yes. So it's not always the size that it is right and it, now. And it changes quickly. And it changes all the way down to, we think, roughly asteroid belt-sized orbit. <laughs> It's, so it's, it's like hard tens of millions of kilometers, possibly like a hundred million kilometers across its radius is getting bigger and smaller. And it's really hard to nail this down. And one of the reasons it's so hard to nail this down is how do you define the edge of a cloud? <laughs> right. This, this star at its outermost layer light pressure is greater than gravitational pull sometimes and this means it's pushing its material away and this outflow is building clouds around it and this is part of what makes it so hard to figure out the real age and evolutionary stage of the star actually because in an ideal situation we'd look at it and sure you can't measure its diameter you can't really tell exactly how much mass it is lost but you can get a pretty darn good estimate by measuring how much mass is around the star but betelgeuse is what we call a runaway star due to something bad that happened in its past it is flying through space at a fairly high velocity and it's losing mass as it goes and because it's losing mass as it goes it's literally leaving its mass behind right like a tr like a cometary trail and and so we can't figure out how much mass it's lost because we don't know where it left it right right because it's been moving for 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 hundreds of thousands millions of years um, now, let's pretend like it will die soon. Um, what will happen and what will remain? Well, we don't know all the details of what stars do before they go boom. If, if we did these radical dimming events that we're going to talk more about. Yes. Yeah. We'll get to the dimming. Don't worry. Uh, it would be less exciting. I, what we think is the star will essentially run out of the ability to keep producing energy like it just runs out of fuel yeah of, that it, the fuel that it was using in the core and and so all that light pressure that was pushing out it's gonna stop being produced now light takes a long time to exit a star and so it's going to be a gradual coming in on itself 
that's going to accelerate and accelerate until all of a sudden the infalling material, which is heating up as it goes, is going to stop just generating enough pressure to maybe hold the star together a little bit better. And it's instead going to start hitting the pressures and the accelerating inward, driving more pressure that is going to cause a supernova. Now, this object we suspect, this star we suspect, will be order of 15 solar masses when it goes boom. Order mm -hmm. of, again, we don't know where it left all its mass. And that means it's going to leave behind most likely a neutron star. So right. we're going to have a classic supernova event, neutron star left behind, think crab nebula, but way closer. In, right. in my head, the way I think about this is someday in the future when they're teaching about the constellations and the mythology, they can upgrade the story so that Orion has a bloody shoulder from where Taurus mm -hmm. gouged him or something. Yeah. I mean, imagine a, and it probably would be visible with the unaided eye. Oh, yeah. Like not, not the explosion. Like the explosion would be absolutely visible yes. and possibly, and definitely visible in the daytime and possibly even brighter than the full moon. Yes. I've heard estimates. So it'll be ridiculous. But even after it's done and gone, the remnant will probably be bright enough to just see with your eyes just there in the sky. Yeah. That it'll be about the size. I mean, when you think about, say, the Crab Nebula after a thousand years-ish is is a teeny tiny blotch in a fairly big telescope. Like I'm imagining something that is like the size of a full moon in the sky that is this just this big red blasted smear in the sky where and there used to be a star. The Crab Nebula is more than 10 times further away. Yeah, yeah. So 10 times closer, bigger. Means a hundred times brighter. Yes. And so thanks to we're gonna have something that's a hundred times brighter. Now it's also going to be spread out over a larger area on the sky. So it's not that every arc second is going to be a hundred times brighter. Because you have to deal with the fact that the light spread over a larger area, but there's more of that light getting to us. And this is a calculation I need to do. I meant to do it in time for the show. But day job got in the way. Um, stay tuned. This is something I'm probably going to do for fun on my blog yeah. at some point. But yes, we're going to have something bigger in the sky that we're going to be able to see by eyeball. Mm -hmm. It's just a matter of how long are we going to be able to see it before it gets so big that its light spread out too much. Right. And we have ex we do have examples of that. There's like the Veil Nebula, the whole Cygnus supernova complex is this gigantic supernova remnant that is a huge portion of the sky. You need to take multiple images in a telescope to be able to to see it. And and that's an example of a, of one that exploded a long time ago, and we're just seeing the wreckage just expand outward into space. So imagine if it was a lot more compact and a lot closer and a lot brighter. So yes, yes, please. Okay, so let's let's shift now to the sort of the recent excitement, the reason why Betelgeuse has come across everybody's news feed and why everybody is so excited that maybe this time it'll explode for real. So why so explain the dimming, what's going on? 
Well, we don't know exactly what's going on, but I can tell you what we observed. Yeah, tell me what we observe. So so normally Betelgeuse varies in brightness by a couple of magnitudes, worst case. And this brightening and dimming has a multi-year periodicity to it, and it also has a hundreds of days periodicity to it. So you have all these complex, just how bright does it get, how faint does it get at any given period, is, is a combination of both of these semi-regular, sometimes forget that they're actually supposed to do something variations. This is what's called a semi-regular pulsating star. It It's not entirely understood why these stars pulsate, because really, it's like a cloud in the, the parts of the star that's undergoing these pulsations. And, and so this super diffuse material is is changing how big the star is which is changing how much surface area is giving off light which is changing the luminosity of the star as it changes in size it's also changing in temperature fine we've we've been observing this for for hundreds of years no big deal but for reasons no one can yet explain, but we're trying to get all the possible observational data to eventually be able to explain it, Betelgeuse dropped down to 35% of its normal luminosity. Now, I'm not saying it was 35% off. I'm saying it was 35% of. Of. Of its normal brightness. 65% off. Right, right. That's a sale. That is. I could buy. I'll buy two of them. (laughs) Yes, please. Save one for a rainy day. (laughs) So, this means that folks going outside looking at Betelgeuse who are used to seeing this amazing bright, bright red star as one of their wayfinders in the night, and this includes me here is going outside and suddenly it's like, wait, where's Orion? Can't find it. Because that thing you look for suddenly was the same apparent magnitude as the other shoulder. Yeah. Yawn. Yeah. It starts masquerading as like the top two heads of Gemini or something. And you need to find the whole constellation before you can make sense of it. Yeah, so before the dimming, it was regularly the 11th brightest star in the sky. And right now it's the 25th, which is, you know, come on, Betelgeuse, you can do better than this, <laughs> right? We expect more from you. Top 25, that's, that, doesn't even, that doesn't even compete now. Um, okay, so why do astronomers think that it's dimming? Well, we, we have three competing reasons. The two likely ones are it possibly puffed a blast of dust our direction, and that dust is obscuring how we see the star. It's distorting the shape we see and essentially scattering light so that we see the entire star as dimmer. What we should be able to see is its brightness as a function of color 
changes in ways that are distinctive of warm dust instead of warm star. It won't be the black body that we're used to. So we're looking to see that. An analogy that I think about is like, you know, when you see the moon, like a full moon, but there's like part clouds and you can see and and the wind is moving really quickly. You can see these clouds just moving in front of the moon like, you know, and the moon is just changing in brightness and, and dimness as these clouds are moving past. And, and so imagine, but the clouds, but imagine the moon was throwing out its own clouds. Right. And that's what's right. So there's one, just clouds of dust that it threw out recently or a long time ago that happened to be obscuring our perspective and that, that will clear up. So what's, what's one of the other ideas they're thinking of? Well, the other is just like our own sun, Betelgeuse has convective cells. We talked about this last week in our episode. And these these convective cells on Betelgeuse are much, much larger. And if you have the cooling flows of two different convective cells interacting in interesting ways, you can potentially end up with a big old cool spot that we're looking at that is going hi not generating as much light gonna make the whole star look fainter here people yeah and so this could be an atmospheric effect where just changes in the churning of this roiling gas are giving us a cool perspective again this is a thermodynamic effect literally Literally a cool perspective, yeah. And and you know, we as you said, right? We talked about that last week with the pictures of the sun, and that you see those convective cells, those bright blobs of gas, um, and then you see the the darker regions around it. And they're still incredibly, insanely hot. It's just they are darker compared to the hot parts. And so, same thing that you're getting less light in total, just based on the way you're seeing the star, the perspective. You happen to be getting the right combination of gigantic convective cells and and then darker regions. And and just like sunspots on our own sun can be bigger in size than Earth, the sunspots on Betelgeuse, we think the biggest can be bigger than our sun. Oh, way bigger. So I've heard they are sixty percent. They can be sixty percent the size of Betelgeuse. So. <sighs> That is significantly bigger than our sun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like, you know, the the orbit from the from the the sun to Mars, or I guess the or from the sun to Jupiter, right? So, imagine a sunspot that is hundreds of millions of kilometers across. Yeah, that's big. Yeah, and 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 yeah, and I like I double checked that, and it's not sixty percent the size of the sun. It's sixty percent the size of that sun. Betelgeuse. Okay, so that's two reasons, right? You've got dust, you've got just like a happenstance of convective cells. And what the third idea is just that it is in one of these expanding and contracting phases. And the the added step of that is that it's in one of the contracting phases. And as its surface area gets smaller, the amount of light we get, well, less. And Maybe we just completely screwed up how old this star is. Maybe the star evolved off the main sequence much longer ago than we thought. Maybe we've misjudged when it had its first dredge up and we don't fully understand the chemistry and the outskirts of a star. And maybe it actually is going to go boom. But mm-hmm. 
very very few people it, it's basically the we're hoping we're completely wrong because we want to see a supernova right yeah can we please be wrong and so let's talk about i mean obviously we know that it could explode at some point within the next hundred thousand years or so maybe the next million years or so we could be the ones to witness it yes but there's no reason to believe that this is this is that this is that time no betelgeuse doesn't care what you or i want right it just follows the rules of physics so why does dimming not tell us that it's about to turn into a supernova because there's these other effects that can make it dim as well right and and there was an interesting post from uh, Ethan Siegel. He was sort of talking about this. And the gist is just like, it just takes time for things in the core of the star to reach the surface, thousands of years. And so whatever we're seeing in the core, whatever is happening in the core, we won't know about it for thousands of years. Not, and not just like the time it takes for the light to get from, but the time it takes for that, that radiation to actually make it through the material in the star. So... Whatever features you're seeing on the surface of the star right now aren't necessarily what's happening inside the star. And this is where looking at its long-term behavior matters so much. Uh, it, it was talked about by Ed Guinan uh, back in December that this is an unusual low, but if it's just something having to do with its normal periodicity, it should start to rebrighten right about now. Yep. And, and it kind of looks like it has flatlined, right? It doesn't just look like it's flatlined, but for the past two days, multiple observers' observations combined are showing that it just might be starting to rebrighten. Right. So instead of being that low of 35% its normal brightness, it's now crept its way up to being 39% <laughs> of its normal brightness. Right. And And so maybe it's starting to come back out. In which case, the question becomes, what is the slope? And that starts to tell us what might be causing this effect. We're catching a star in the process of dying. Human society might actually even last long enough for us to document the entire thing. I mean, who knows? Maybe you'll yeah. still be around in 100,000 years. In in my, yeah, in my robot body. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But this is the first time we've gotten to document this. Yeah. This is a star 600 light years away. It's not that far away in the grand scheme of things. It's big enough we can see it as multiple pixels on a detector. We can see its sunspots. We can see right now using the very large telescope and its sphere instrument that the shape has changed. This is not the spherical star we saw a year ago. This is this weird distorted something that it may not be physically distorted, but the places where the light is coming out. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's important. Yeah, yeah. so I had, I had, you know, it looked, when you look at the pictures and you can see this sort of really bright blob at the top in this darker region down, it looks like the star is blobbing out, but it's almost certainly that it's just a region that is bright and shiny and a region that is less shiny, and, possibly and with a with that cloud, as I mentioned, passing in front of it or... You know, and the way to think actually... of this is a super dirty lampshade outside. I I have some outdoor lampshades that dirt and grime and stuff have all gathered in the bottom of the light shade. 
And so when you look at the light, it's it's not this pretty sphere of light. It's this mottled grossness reminding me I need to clean lampshades. Right. Well, the dust and grime around Betelgeuse, the darkness from whatever convective cells may be merging, all of these different things can add up to what appears to be a non-spherical star that's just spherical, but doesn't have a blob of dead bugs like my lamp but it's right. got a blob of dust right so i think you know as we bring this episode home uh it's an absolutely fascinating star wonderful that we have such an incredible red supergiant so close to us probably not going to explode in our lifetime but, but i want it to of course we all do come on uh and anyone who's worried about the Betelgeusians, uh <laughs> They've only known suffering for the short, few short millions of years that this star has been around. It's true. That, that the explosion of this star uh, would be really just icing on the cake of, of just a few short million years. Like, just imagine, right? Your star... Our solar system hadn't even finished the great heavy bombardment at the point in its history that is the same number of years as, as the Betelgeuse system has been around. It's a baby solar system. Yeah, yeah. So, like, think about how long planets take to form. It's already died in that process. Not to mention it is pumping out radiation at obnoxiously high levels. Not to mention it changes in size from, the, you know, Bigger from the than size Jupiter's of the asteroid orbit. belt to the size of Jupiter. You try to live near a star that's changing. Like, there is nothing habitable around Betelgeuse. When that star goes... We can see it. We'll be able to see it. Um well, but we'll keep you posted if, it, if anything does happen. Um, Pamela, do you have any names for us this week? I, I do. And um, I just want to once again thank all of you out there who support us month after month. And um, we're here thanks to you. Susie is able to do all the heavy lifting around here. And we can pay her because of your patronage. And we couldn't do this show without having her there to do all the heavy lifting so i want to thank those people who really made this possible and this week i'm going to thank uh, michelle cullen neuter dude william lauer eric Ferringer, ryan james shannon humber nalia Kristen brooks glenn mcdavid dan Lippman, caselia panflienko dean Mathis Hendon, Benjamin Davies, Russell Peto, Martin Dawson, Kamansky, Dana Nowry, Bart Flaherty, Father Prax, Andrew Stevenson, Kenneth Ryan, Dean McDaniel, Donald E. Mundus, and Antisor. Awesome. Thank you, everyone, for your continued support of what we do. Uh, you support us directly so that you can get your space news from us as opposed to relying on some traditional, you know, old school media channel. I mean, I'm not saying it's aliens. It's not uh, aliens. It's not aliens. Uh, all right. Thanks, Pamela. We'll see you uh, in several weeks. So stay tuned when the next episode comes out when I'm back from Japan. Thanks, everybody. <laughs> Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Astronomy Cast, a nonprofit resource provided by the Planetary Science Institute, Fraser Kane and Dr. Pamela Gay. You can find show notes and transcripts for every episode at AstronomyCast. You can email us at info at astronomycast.com. Tweet us at AstronomyCast, like us on Facebook, 
and watch us on YouTube. We record our show live on YouTube every Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 p.m. Pacific, or 1900 UTC. Our intro music was provided by David Joseph Wesley. The outro music is by Travis Searle, and the show was edited by Susie Murph. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.